In this episode, we are starting with a new theme, which will occasionally be the foundation of an episode like the one today. The theme is simply work, the activity which underlines human existence, however you define or conceptualize it. The idea comes from hearing about the work of Stutt Turkel, a great radio producer from Chicago who documented the stories of its inhabitants from the 1950s to the 1990s and thought that every voice and every story had the right to be heard. I want Stories from the Atlantic to be an open venue, without too rigid outlines or concepts, where various themes, like this one, can fit in with the ideas, people, encounters, and subjects that come my way. And on my way, on a road, close to my home, I frequently bike past a shoemaker's shop. I'd had a couple of keys made at the shop of Haldur Guðbjörnsson throughout the years, located on the road Sundlöfavegur, named after the swing pool I frequent. The building is two stories, white and stands on the corner of a mildly busy traffic street and a quiet residential street. The curve of the building's wall and the large red letters with his name have been an, in- have been an integral part of this neighborhood, known as Laugadalur. Haldor kindly agreed to share some insights to the career he chose, which mostly entails fixing shoes and making copies of keys. It started with an education in the Reykjavik Trade School, Þetta eru þrjú, þrýr vetur sem fórum í einskólum, sko. Og það er náttúrulega bara hef, þetta hefðbunna sem menn voru minnstum skósmiði, sko. Þú ferð bara eins og þessi skólan á mér, þú ert bara að læra flatateiningu og fríjaldisteiningu, ennsko, dönsku. The schooling lasted three years, least of it focused on shoemaking, which was a mere three weeks course. The focus was on math, Icelandic, Danish and English, along with the various drawing techniques, while the three weeks included most everything he would need for his future career. But at such a young age, starting his education at the age of 16, I asked about the decision to choose shoemaking. (laughs) He joked about it, about him telling his mother, who was adamant in the need to learn a trade, that he would either become a shoemaker or a priest. Shortly after, his mother announced that she had spoken to the shoemaker Helgi Thorvaldsson, who had agreed to take her son as an intern. And with that, a career of 50 years started, which I asked if realistically could have been a career of the faith as a priest. He laughs at the idea, saying it was more of a joke than anything. In light of the new work mentality, the millennials' demand for this and that when it comes to work, and Iceland's high level of changing careers in a very fluid economy, I asked Haldor how firm he was on his choice and sticking with it. When young, you don't think too much about things, but rather jump into life and onto whatever path it takes you. He says there is a gap between the young and the older in terms of considering life choices and uses the saying, in the end shall the beginning be evaluated. Although he is content with his working life, 
He says that perhaps law would have suited his character better. But he started his career running, a pun in the case of Haltur, who since a young age was a successful athlete. At 19, he, like the rest of the nation, had to beg the bank manager for a loan, and with 72,000 kroners, he bought his own repair shop located on Baronstiur, a downtown street named after a French baron, Charles Gouldre Bolueux, who settled in Iceland in 1898 and built a cowshed at the location named after him. Though the baron's destiny was more tragic, ending in his early death and bankruptcy, the location of Halto's new business was less than perfect. The location was not prime and the equipment was in bad shape, but he told me of a defining character of his trade as a social hub. Shoemakers and barbers have always had a large number of people visiting and chatting, partly, of course, based on the services they offer, the latter literally forced to keep up conversations as the customer sat in their chair, inches away from the barber's blade. In his case, the list is wider than clientele, including friends, buddies, families and others. The inner sanctum is in the back, where a sofa and two thick leather chairs offer moments, sometimes minutes in between a flow of customers, to sit down, drink coffee and chat. I asked about the machines and tools of his trade, starting with a green vintage-looking sewing machine, as if it had been teleported from a 1940s German factory. He bought it new, 40 or so years ago, from a man who planned on a post-retirement career in shoemaking, but then lost his health. The design and look of these machines has changed little since World War II and serves the same function to this day, which in Halto's case is to fix shoes. Though a shoemaker by trade, one of the few pairs he has ever made were his graduation project. Shiny black leather shoes made by hand and polished with glass, the old method. But the time needed means that the price is high and he knows of only one shoemaker in Iceland who got into that aspect of the trade. A big factor for his survival or income are the various shoe fashions which go hand in hand with the party scene of each period. Haltor recounts the locations of Reykjavik's nightlife in the 1960s where shoes tapped, twisted, or made other contact with the floor. There was a variety of clubs to dance in, as opposed to now, and also, the party scene was based on one day a week. Some shoemakers ran repair all through Friday night, keeping open till noon on Saturday, the big party night. 
Now people go out and dine and party all days of the week. And also, they don't wear the kind of shoes that give shoemakers business. High heels, pinnahailar, extremely popular in the 50s and 60s, meant the golden age for shoemakers, who also prefer a fashion of high-quality shoes that certainly will need repairing at some point, but are at least worth repairing, as opposed to certain fashions. He remembers the China shoe, cheap but colorful, easily falling apart, but popular at one point, sometimes in the latter part of the 20th century, the opposite of what sustains shoe repair shops. And that brings up questions about durability, the conflict of price versus quality of owning one good pair of shoes or going through a dozen. Also questions about how you experiment with fashion trends or cement yourself into one kind of look when it comes to what you wear through the years. From the earliest known shoe, 7,700 years ago, found in Missouri, USA, and then 5,500 years ago, leather shoes found in Armenia. The famous Utsi, a man found frozen on a glacier, walked the glacier terrain of present-day Austria in handmade leather shoes 5,300 years ago. Fast forward through wooden shoes, sandals, and finally the explosion of trade and advanced techniques as the Napoleonic Wars required shoes for 250,000 soldiers immediately at the start of the 19th century. Among them, the machine invented by Lyman R. Blake in 1858, which could sew the sole to the upper part of the shoe much faster than the human hand. Today, the machines have taken over many of the processes in shoemaking, though cheap labor in certain countries still means the process is done by hand, whether for sports shoes or other types. That aspect of shoemaking or production, as well as most modern industries seeking cheaper labor, often in countries with little regulation or respect for workers' health, is beyond the scope of this episode, though important, and is facing us when looking at our cell phones, clothing, and sometimes shoes. On the other hand, no machine takes over the job Haltotas. Tailor-made solutions to various problems, something that would require a machine to constantly modify its behavior, the quality man still has over the machine. And perhaps with the mechanical firmness, Haltor shows up at work, five days a week, same time, with a work ethic, that has in some ways changed. In hindsight, he called it the misunderstood conscientiousness, not wanting to disappoint the customer, along with the work ethic that followed him from childhood. He also says that the customer had less sympathy for shop owners closing early, for whatever reasons, than today. And so, through slow times of low income, he kept at it, seldom closing early or hanging up a be back soon sign. As a customer leaves, he tells me of the valuable advice he was given 50 years ago. His mentor, master in Icelandic, during his internship, taught him the importance of standing with a straight back, something that is all the more important when you have 50 years in front of you, repeating the same movements. 
He told me of another risk that comes from his profession, namely the air from both chemicals and dust by polishing. Some shoemakers have to stop using certain chemicals due to allergies or skin issues, while asthma can result from decades of breathing in bad air. At one point, I noticed that his fingers were crooked and assumed it was from some aspect of the job, perhaps while holding shoes against the fast-moving polisher wheel or brush, but I was wrong. This is where we turn the corner and leave his shop, with his words that his job has never been the main focus in life. Haltor has only taken two summer holidays in his life, both in order to attend the Olympics in judo. In the back of his shop are paintings and photographs of horses, one of his three big hobbies, as well as pigeon keeping and judo. Three times a week, the 72-year-old shoemaker attends a one-and-a-half-hour practice at the judo organization of Reykjavik, where I join him on an April afternoon. His crooked fingers are mostly due to judo, the intense grabbing and constant strain, exasperated by arthritis, which has literally bent them out of shape. As we look at photos from the 1970s hanging on the walls, it becomes clear that his involvement goes beyond a hobby. When I asked him about the time for all these hobbies, he painted the picture that to many would be grim. When he started practicing judo in 1963, he was also practicing running, in which he held various Iceland records, and at the top of his game, as well as working two jobs, running his shop and working for the Reykjavik Power Company. He was dressed in a blue, common color, judo outfit, with a belt that did not give away his actual rank, so to speak. But Haltor carries the sixth down, the second highest of anyone in Iceland, something that he downplays and barely pulled it out of the bag for me to see before quickly stuffing it back in. Only the coach, Jura, has a higher dan, the eighth, but as we walked into the practice hall, an open space with blue and red rubber mats and wide windows on two sides, he immediately started pointing out people and their achievements, even though his own, competing first in 1973, are many. <laughs> That kind of praise to others came perhaps from his second involvement in the sport. It turns out he used to coach the national judo team for 10 years, and the coach in him was clear as he walked between those wrestling, watching them, encouraging and laughing as a good move led to one falling harshly on the floor. After telling me about the history of the sport, its roots in karate, originating in Japan, founded by the master, Jigoro Kano, in 1882, I asked him if the ideology of the sport is important to him. At first, it was solely to fight, to be able to rough and tumble, along with the camaraderie. But a fellow member described Haltor as a fighter with a big heart and someone who hates to lose. The fighting, or wrestling as it's called in Icelandic, had started. And Haltor began to walk around in search of an opponent. 
Among the 20 or so fighters, many were intensely strong and muscled. Among them, a member of the Icelandic SWAT team called the Viking Squad. A man I pity any criminal to come up against. Sweat had already started flowing from faces and bare chests, though two women wore black shirts underneath. Bodies were at this point slamming hard on the mats from practice moves, but shortly the real action would begin. It's worth noting that in Japan, in the old days, they used wooden mats for judo. The results were broken bones and worse. I'd never seen judo live, and I guess I'd almost forgotten its existence, as the Icelandic TV seldom broadcasts competitions. As opposed to the massively popular MMA, mixed martial arts, judo looks less aggressive, less brutal, but nonetheless powerful. Haltor started wrestling with a man in his 50s, and while the younger ones fought with more haste all around them, Haltor moved slowly, with an iron grip on the collar of his opponent. His face occasionally looked around at others, as if not taking the fight very seriously. Suddenly, he got his opponent down, with no change in his face, but a handshake followed. I suddenly saw where some of his body movements in the shop came from. For example, how he grabbed shoes or walked up to the counter with firm but agile steps. Judo is him in his element, and it became more clear as he got more excited, going to the next opponent, some of them in their teens, a young woman, and young men in their prime. With every match, his demeanor changed, as if he was transforming into the fighter, his movements getting quicker, and his face showing more intensity. It was mesmerizing, and after five fights, all victories, he was turned down by some that were out of energy in their 20s. As opposed to ballet, the heavier fighters can become better with age, gaining not only power and strength, but mostly the skills of fighting. One of the coaches told me that Haltor is playing chess, while the young ones are simply pumping, struggling, often wasting their energy, which, when it comes to judo, is intense. To give you an idea, the fights, lasting three to five minutes, some up to ten, are a near non-stop anaerobic workout, where your muscles are constantly in action, as opposed to the more aerobic style of MMA, where you are not in constant contact. It was getting close to the end of the practice. A famous old-timer sat on the bench and chatted, and Haltor's daughter arrived, proud and impressed by her father's health and energy. In the end, they all walked in circles, hands to the air, breathing deeply and filling their lungs in the evening spring light, before the much-awaited sauna, where muscles relax and conversations flow freely. After the weekend, Haltor would open up his shop on Monday, at the same time in the morning, continue to fix and polish shoes and copying keys, until closing for the day, when he would possibly go horse riding or fighting. That's it for this episode of Stories from the Atlantic, with special thanks to the Reykjavik Judo Organization and Halter Kudbjörsson, who leaves us with the names of some very important terms in Judo.